Hello, all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to Season 3 of Therapy Works, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. The mission of this podcast is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations that may contain difficult emotions can be profoundly healing. Let's see who is joining us this week. So welcome, Sadie Frost. I'm thrilled for you to join me on our podcast. And you'll be very well known to our listeners uh, as an actor, a fashion designer, producer, and a director of documentaries. That's right. I've just um, yeah changed my profession again um, in my 50s, which is quite interesting. Anyway, it's, it's lovely to be here. Because I was kind of thinking about you and trying to kind of make sense of the different phases of your life and the roots of your life. And the first question I always ask um, a guest is, what are the particular challenges you are facing or have faced? So I think now, I mean, obviously, um, I was looking at this and our lives are full of many different challenges and different kind of um crossroads or different kind of times when you're looking at your identity and who you are and things go how, how you want them to and then and then suddenly they're not going how you want them to so it, it's just so up and down and I guess it's just like getting a handle on it to be able to when there is something rocky go through it without completely spinning out of control um, and I think this part of my life, in a way, is definitely liberating. Having raised four kids and them all being young adults and, and looking at them going off into the world, seeming like confident, beautiful, well-rounded people. It's amazing. Um, Just take yeah. a moment. I mean, that <laughs> is in itself a huge thing, no? It, it's so, so massive. Um, I think what I didn't realise was that I was, I mean, of course... I knew I was a family person. I knew that it was so important to me. But when they all left home in last year, I made the decision um, to downsize and, and, and live in a smaller place because the kids were doing their own thing. It, I didn't realize how much it was going to really hurt that they that we're not all living together. Um, and I think you really take it for granted. Um, there's just a little thing, just making a cup of tea in the morning, kind of bumping into people on stairs, moaning at someone about the washing, you know, all of that kind of stuff. You miss all of it, um, every little bit. And I suddenly realized that, yes, I've always had this idea of moving to the countryside and being a bit of a hippie and living the life that I kind of felt like I wanted to. But the price of not being with them all the time has been quite intense. And I think the thing is, um, I think maybe if I had a partner now and they'd left and you kind of go, well, like we're going to go and we're going to go and do this together. But it was very much like, okay, I've moved to the country, got a new life. The kids are doing their thing. It's great because I've got this amazing job directing Twiggy at the moment. But there were moments of grief of just like, I just miss them as ba babies, young yeah. children, being in the bed and all, you know, cuddling. And um, so, and you kind of think, I never thought I would end up in my 50s 
this being my life, but this is my life. But I've really practiced, um, worked on over the last, because I was always a, a huge codependent. Um, and for me, I, I, I really like the fact that I'm incredibly independent now. I do a lot of things on my own. And I love doing things on my own. I'm not like lonely, lonely. It's just like I feel like something's missing, like a, a limb or something when the kids kids are not around all the time and we're not in contact as much as we used to be because they're all just living their life. Um, but, um, you know, I am independent and I meditate and have done for quite a long time every day. But there is a kind of craving of that 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 unity and the nostalgia for, you know, those the family chaos. I mean, it's a yeah. it's a real thing, isn't it? I mean, you had four kids over kind of nine or ten years when your life was incredibly intense, incredibly busy. So I, I imagine, and you were going through a lot of different mm-hmm. changes. So I imagine there were times you thought, "Oh my God, I can't deal with this." But they were the fabric, or you know, the thing that the the, the heart of your heart. Those kids, one hundred percent, and enabled you to survive quite a lot of losses from separation and divorce mm. and gave you purpose. And I think what I call it is is a living loss. So it's experienced exactly like grief and you feel the pain of grief, you feel the missing, you feel the whole and you feel like, who am I now? Mm. But it isn't fully recognized as a grief. And I think that question you say to yourself, like, I never expected this version of me to me to be me living on my own, living in the country without my kids mm. and how surprising life can be. And, and that sometimes things just happen and they're nothing to do with your choices. You have to just get on with it um, and, and accept it that it, it just happened this way because someone else made choices and, and, and this has been kind of your life. But I think probably when I... Um, divorced and and you know the kids were very young and I I was kind of in a in a emotion of like I've just got to get up I've just got to get head the kids down, to school keep head going. down keep going and all of that kind of stuff and it took a long time to kind of for me to recover get my myself together my self-esteem was like on the floor I just you know felt your dad died you said my, you were depressed there yeah was a lot. I had postnatal depression and I just felt like it but I just kind of carried on with it and then I think slowly you know, it took a long time putting myself back together and then being the best version of me and really enjoying my life and you know doing the things that I want which was go to India and study yoga and always kind of loved being close to nature and animals but you know I feel kind of in, in a way mentally the best I've ever felt um in, in that I'm I do feel quite whole in me but then there's these other factors missing and you kind of feel like I always have to do this thing of like well I mean, I have my own version of God, but but God has put this here for me to learn about myself. And I think we're all on this planet to learn about acceptance and ego and, you know, to not think we're better. I think just being able to be really, um, you know, compassionate about other people. I think going through the hard times that I went through, you know, I, I'm, I, it's made me want to really be hands-on with certain charities, really help people, be really empathetic. But if if I'd have gone through my life and not had those losses, I would have been a blinkered person. And maybe more armoured, maybe more hardened. Yeah. You know, when you're in, a, in the pub, public eye, which I was to a certain degree or acting or in certain worlds, you're in a bubble and it's very hard to see what's outside that bubble. But I feel like I'm quite aware and I'm quite, 
I like the kind of simple things in life. Um, and I appreciate just sitting down and having a meal with my family or my kids and, and cooking with them and going for walks. And that's what matters to them. So that's really good because I feel like they're, they're not into the material things. They don't care about like that kind of crazy side that the planet's off, offering up. Of course, we all want to be comfortable and stuff, but I think their morals are really good. And, and I do believe like deep down, and I think it must be when you're reflecting on your life and you're going getting to your 50s and, you know, it, through your 50s and for me, like sitting, like reflecting on, oh, well, you know, I, I never thought I'd be divorced twice and I didn't know that would happen. And what happens if I didn't, hadn't done that? And I'm looking in my kind of the, when I packed everything up in the boxes in the garage and I'm going, oh my God, there's an old wedding photo from here. And there's a fr me as a punk with that friend. And you're like, it, or your whole life is in little boxes. And you're like, God, all that stuff that you had and all of that, of course, it, they all are memories, but now they're just memories. Can I pause you there? Because yeah. I, I would challenge that in a way that the past, okay, they're represented by photos in boxes, but those wedding photos, the the kind of, you know, belt that you had when you were 25 or whatever it is, is part of what made you now. And what I've understood from what you said is that through your relationships, I mean, you were, and you and tell me if I've got this wrong, you were very much in the past identified as the wife of Gary Kemp or the wife of Jude Law. And you said you were codependent. Mm. And part of your maturation in a way and coming into Sadie Frost yourself is discovering who you are interdependently, not as someone's wife. And when I was thinking about you, I felt like it's through your role as a parent and really finding and defining yourself as a mum, but also equally working hard professionally, like developing the Frost fashion brand, acting, producing films, and now directing documentaries, that you've actually found a way of defining Sadie Frost that is interdependent and not just the other half of a well-known singer mm -hmm. or actor. I mean, the thing was, you know, I came from a slightly dysfunctional family. My mum had me when she was 16 and she'd run away from home. And my father, um, she didn't know, had been married already and already had two kids. So there was, ended up being a lot of us. There was three marriages either side, 10 brothers and sisters. So that's six marriages, isn't it? Ten yeah. brothers and sisters. Yeah. That is yeah. a lot of people in one family, right? There's a lot of people. And, and my father was an amazing artist, but it was quite chaotic. And I think I was definitely affected by how he was. But it gave me a, a personality of wanting to be different and, to you know, wanting to act or wanting to, you know, um, not really fit in. So I did really interesting things, you know, at your early age, you know, making movies, being in a Vivian Westwood, Westwood show, traveling. And um, when I met Gary, I mean, I was very much my own person and, and, and he, he courted me and, you know, wanted me and we were in this amazing kind of relationship really, but I, I hadn't found me and I wasn't ready to be in that relationship because it felt like he was quite dominating. I'd had a baby and I had a baby young and I was just trying to find out who I was. And then you know, it's just always the way like something gets put in front of you that can be that thing that distracts you. And then you think that thing is going to be the thing that's going to make you become you. But sometimes it takes you so far away from you. So 
you know, by getting the screen test and auditioning for shopping, um, when I was living in LA and had this kind of pretty amazing life going with Gary, I kind of just decided, didn't think about it, just, well, I'm going to leave Gary because I love Jude. And then, of course, I invested so much in that family and, and put so much in that, but then he he wasn't as invested as me. And then I was like, all I ever wanted was to be in in a have a mom and a dad and a family. That was I didn't to want repair to ha- what you hadn't had. Exactly. So my whole dream of of spending the rest of my life with somebody, they just they just did exactly what I did to Gary and and decided one day no on a whim I don't want to do this anymore. Was what, just, could, what sense do you make of that now when you look back the decades? I don't really have any regrets on you know any of my choices. I would like to think there's going to be happy ever after you know you know I'm going to live like meet somebody who wants to um do the things I want to do like just ex- explore nature and and travel and work hard and be creative be a real kind of partner a soul partner and somebody that's yeah loving reliable um and not controlling um and uh I was talking about this the other day and and you saying that being the partner of, because even in the nineties, you were very much a woman was a partner of like you, it isn't spoken in those terms. I'm like, what happened to me? Thank God. But what happened to me being already, I had a career. I was gone to drama school. I'd done theater work. I, I didn't just come from nowhere. I worked hard. I never had a day off in my life, but the kind of comparisons of, oh, your husband earns more or you're this. And why do men earn more? And being pulled down for all those things because you're just a woman and like would not happen. There was a lot of bullying going on. So that had to make, that made me thick skinned. And, you know, at the time of that bullying, as I said, I had no self-esteem. And, and so it's really hard to pull myself out of that and uh, and get back on my feet. How, how did that. you do that? I mean, for people listening who may not have the same story as you, but they may well have a parallel story of marrying people that they thought would be the answer, then them not being the answer and finding themselves alone or disillusioned or left. What were the things that you called on in yourself that enabled you to be where you are now, which is, you know, an independent professional woman who can look after herself. I know you want a partner, but from mm. a kind of professional point of view. I made sure I got up every day, even when I was really depressed. And, you know, and with the postnatal depression, I was in and out of hospital for, for wow. two years. Oh I my was, God, that was really yeah, I was bad. On psychiatric wards. It was, it was not pretty and not nice and scary. And really scary because you don't know why these things are happening, you know. And that's why um, I, I like to speak to people who have depression and postnatal depression. So it, you feel like you're blaming yourself, but it's a chemical thing. And, you know, the, the chemistry in your brain isn't right. And, and, and for women, it's hormones. I've had a lot of um, issues with hormones, you know, all, all throughout my life. And it just proves that with the postnatal depression. What the enabled you thing- to get better, do you think? My friends, you know, I had amazing friends and my mom, having people around me that didn't judge me. Um, but I think I just had to keep going and it took a long time to really get to, um, a place where I could, it's that kind of thing of, you know, fake it to make it. I just had to try and smile and get on with it, but it still took a while and I made a lot of mistakes. I wish I hadn't kind of like 
put so many distractions in my way. Like just like, just did the healing process because I was so like, I, I've got to replace this whole, everything that I've lost, I've got to try and replace it. And and actually what that did was just cause make more chaos. That's You've such got- a good point, isn't it? Like the the urge to fill the hole, to try and kind of stop the hole is mm. so strong. But actually psychologically, we need to grieve the hole you know if that's the metaphor yeah and feel the pain of it in order to allow ourselves to heal you have to go through the pain I mean there's all these theories of people say well if you've been with someone this this long it's going to take you five years to get they give you a they give you a time time and and I'd be like I don't have five years I don't want to like be in pain for five years and and then everybody would be um trying to kind of say just be calm and I'd be like no I've got to do I've got to you know, I wanted to meet somebody else really quickly. And when I meet now somebody who's just had a breakup and they're talking about meeting somebody really quickly and then you see that desperation in them, I can kind of relate to that. I was probably, like, I was probably very, very desperate in, in a way just because I wanted to be happy. But I think like now I would be with what I know now and with the meditation and sitting with myself and, you know, not to be reactive and not to place all these kind of um Thing, like just putting the, the plaster on that's going to ease it for for a short while so I wish I'd taken a bit more care and but I was I was just yeah scared I mean, you were probably terrified really really scared yeah so I don't regret any of it and, and I have a very close relationship with both my exes and their brilliant dads but it this is my kind of story and and I do believe that things happen for a reason and I am the person I am because I've experienced what I've experienced So thinking about where you are now and your relationship with your children, you know, there are a lot of people listening, including me, who have adult children and both live with the reality that they're no longer at home and there's the space where they were and all the mess and the chaos that drove you nuts at the time you now miss and kind of long for. But also reconfiguring the relationship with adult children, like how much do you jump in and help them? How much do you kind of let them figure it out for themselves? How do you maintain the closeness? It's a a difficult thing to balance. I think I am a communicator. Um, I um, love being in contact with my kids. Hopefully I'm not too annoying, even though one of my kids told me last night I was very annoying. Um, and I think that's because you're I, by no means the only one. But the fact uh, that they could tell you you're annoying shows how much they trust yeah. you. Yeah, right? and they said, "Mom, you're so annoying." And I'm like, "Oh my god! All I'm trying to do is just see if you're okay." And um, I can be impulsive. I, can, I, I obviously can be annoying. And 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 the thing is, it's just learning that I'm the grown up, and that you know, there there will always be my children because I'll sometimes act. I, because of my upbringing, I'm always going to be stuck in a in the kind of teenage mindset. That, like they always say, when you go through a big life thing and you've gone through trauma. So I am often like a 15 year old, and my was kids that, are more. What was the trauma when you were 15? It was just like me becoming, you know, growing up a bit myself, um, becoming a, um, a teenager, adult, young adult, and I think my relationship with my dad really broke down and we were estranged so and yeah it was it's very difficult and even when he was um passing dying in the hospital 
we were still kind of estranged and that a lot of things happened that I did, you know, like he had mental illness and, and, and was waiting for a liver transplant. And there was a lot of shame and guilt and loss. But the good thing is I made peace with that. But I think there's just part of me that will always be, you know, a bit slightly immature. So I've just got to remind myself, I'm the grown up. They're the kids, they're, they're growing up and, 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 and let them, um, spread their wings and that's exactly what they're doing they are all confident and um creative amazing kids and one of them's living in LA at the moment one of them's been in Japan and one of them's at uni and the other one's you know doing some amazing kind of stuff with music you know I am proud and and every day you know like all close family members in my life I just think of them and it's so hard like you always think you're going to be a cool mum or a cool parent and then you just I just so many times kind of feel like I'm just playing that um that character in absolutely fabulous with a you know I, I kind of channel certain um <laughs> cliched relationships and then I'm like what am I doing what am I doing but you know then I go away and meditate and 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 tell myself you know I think texting is a, a really dangerous thing I seem to have a real problem not just with my kids but with business partners or friends that you, texting does not like is not a good way to communicate because if someone doesn't get to put put a kiss on you think they're they're not Cross. being friendly and if somebody does an exclamation mark you think they're this and then if if you you know ask people how they are and be quite kind of loving and giving in a message and if someone doesn't reply to that in the same tone i i find that they're being offensive and rude but actually they're just not that's how they they do a text they're just busy or, they're just yes. busy i just have this thing i don't know it was somewhere along the line in some kind of therapy group somebody said you know and it's all that thing of being you know okay. both of us are equals and it's a two-way thing but I I can't do that and expect everyone to be how I am and and it's just about accepting that yeah people people message in a different way and and not everyone wants to be and it, and I'm fuming if if someone doesn't message me back and feel I abandoned but it thing. sounds like that you have quite a lot of insight that you know that given the trauma that happened when you were having, uh, 15 and the complex relationship with your father and the kind of estrangement and his illness, I imagine if he had a liver transplant, he was maybe an addict. I don't know. I'm making that up. But no, he was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that in itself is unpredictable and chaotic and brings up a lot of issues of abandonment. And it sounds like you've worked really hard to be able to center yourself and recognize your patterns you know, that are in response to that. And also that they will get ignited as a parent with your kids, like you're worrying they haven't replied or you're over-parenting them. And they're saying, mom, I, mean, I do, my 42-year-old daughter, I still kind of want to say to her, put a jacket on, it's raining outside. And she says, mom, I am 42. I've got three kids. Shut up. I know. Uh, we're always going to be the parent. We're always going to be the mum, you know. And but I'd love someone to tell me to put a jacket on and, and be warm. I just rang my sister, yeah. and because you know, I told you my um, family members had a um, a suspected heart attack today. So we, so the family's been thing. very a bit. It's a big thing, and we were being very connected as a family. And, and I, and then I've been moved to the country, and I said to my sister, "It'd be really nice if you called me and checked up on me, or came to visit me, or." And I think that. We're all so wrapped up in our own little lives and worlds that, that we don't realise that maybe somebody is feeling a bit unloved, a bit lonely. And and when something happens in a family where someone's got ill or something, you suddenly realise like we all love each other so much and we do need to check in. And I like checking in with people. And when people 
don't check him back. That is an abandonment thing. Yeah. It hurts. But also you just need something simple like a hug. Like today, having had that news about your sibling, mm. you you need the the calming oxytocin of the contact of someone giving you a hug saying, we're going to be okay, you're, we're safe. And in some mm. ways, calling is good, but texts don't do that. Texts, as you said, they're open to every kind of different interpretation. And, and someone sending you a text could, you know, like I'm quite direct. I don't say, how are you? And then sometimes I have mm. to go back and put it in because I realize I've just said, are you going to do this? Yeah, exactly. It can be, it can just sound like you're ranting. It's always about checking, isn't it? What you send people before. And I mean, slowing, no down. One really, slowing down, no one really wants to hurt anyone's feelings, but you know, so many things lost in translation. I always say to people and I say to my kids to be kind and um, you know, and they are all kind. And it's keeping a check on ourselves that none of us are perfect. We've all got our problems or or things that are kind of maybe uh, defects, character defects and stuff. And and it's kind of realizing them and then being able to apologize and um, and sometimes being the bigger person and stepping down. Because in, in a way, what you're saying is what you've learned, I guess, from a very rich life but a, and a full complicated life is that nobody is perfect. We live messy, chaotic lives and sometimes we are our best selves and sometimes we're really not. But when you can acknowledge and apologise or step down or do your best to repair, that seems what you're saying, is that you, you don't kind of hold the grudge but you can do what you can to repair the... Um, injury or the interruption or whatever the conflict was absolutely and we you know it is part of our the way our brains work that we want to talk and and we're kind of interact we want to connect connect and communicate and 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 yeah communicate and have these little communities so we're wired to connect and we want to and we should be able to forgive like people so if if people are you know, you're going through a different of opinion because we're all going to have different opinions and it ends up being in a way that you might have kind of had a disagreement with someone or fallen out. For me, a few months later, it's so completely forgotten. And that is something that really comes in, you know, with, with into kind of when you're meditating, doing yoga and Buddhism and, um, you know, Hinduism about forgiveness and being kind. So I pretty much forgive, you know, everything and everybody and you know my whole thing about thing and the fact that you have good relationships with your ex-husbands shows that you can really do that yeah because they've never done really anything wrong they've just been living the life that they want to live and it's just how it how it is um I think I think all that stuff to you know to just always look at your behavior is important otherwise you just have these resentments and you have these you know, when you kind of get that the kind bitterness of, get, is so the bitterness, contaminating. Yeah, and toxic. And then if if it builds up in your head and you're in rage, it's like, what is the point of all that stuff? It's just like I don't want to be around that toxicity. So you know, checking in with yourself a lot every day. You know, so you've done a, a really good job in kind of centering yourself and getting the perspective for yourself of what really matters and letting the feelings come through you so that you can be in touch with your kindness and the connection rather than the kind of resentment and the fury. But given that, if you were looking at the future for the next five years, do you have a a picture for yourself that you'd like to make true? 
I mean, I feel like I'm in a good place and, and a place I've been striving to get to in, you know, this life change, being in the countryside. I think it's all about being happy internally. You know, I, I, I realized quite a while ago that all these external things don't make you happy. And when I moved into this house, it, it's like interesting, the things that that I needed and wanted with next to me were, were like a little incense holder or a little bottle or so there wasn't sweet. anything. It wasn't like, it was just these, these little kind of meaningful things to me and things around scent, you know, sensory things. So, you know, smell and touch and texture. That and must link to your dad, no? Yeah, I think he was definitely... such a creator in sight, sound, touch and smell. Yeah, and my mum was a really good homemaker because the, they were hippies, so it was all about smelling really lovely, wholesome food and everyone being able to eat kind of really nice vegetarian food. You know, for me, I've never ever eaten meat or fish, so the kind of kindness thing goes into animals and, like, living in the country and there's, there's spiders. I, and I would never kill a spider. You know, I don't want to kill anything. But I, I just really feel like you have to respect, you know, all humans and all animals and insects and everything so the picture you'd like to have that you'd envision for yourself is... oh yeah so I I think I'm on my way to it it's just like this kind of just being very peaceful and, and living this country life I think I, I still have some more work some things I want to do I'm gonna do, do another documentary and direct a feature film that's amazing I think, I think it's just more being more still more present for having more time to just do the things that I sometimes didn't get the opportunity to do when I was growing up and bringing the kids up, you know, like, you know, just baking a cake and gardening, This the small like things. I think just being sitting with yourself. So that when you meditate and you're aligning, you know, you're aligning your heart and your heart and head and soul and you're feeling really complete and, and all kind of glowy and buzzy and it's just like maintaining that feeling as for longer rather than having at the moment there's still like ups and downs of like stress and work and business and conflict because of the world we live in um but what I get from you and it sounds really important is that having come from quite a chaotic uninhabited in a way childhood you're wanting to inhabit yourself fully and that that's mirrored externally by being safe at home, safe in your body, slowing down, not kind of being busy in a kind of dramatic way, being with your kids, being with things that are really ethical and give you a sense of integrity, but also give you a sense of calm and peace. And that that's something that you, I guess you've longed for your whole life. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think the thing is, you can't buy time. You you know, time is the most important thing. You can't get it back and we all have to value our time. And I think when you're busy and when I see some of my, some of my friends like rushing around 24-7, like, you know, I can and I do and I have, I just think, what? why are you doing that? Because it, it, it doesn't really get you anywhere, all that rushing. And you say to people, how, how are you? And they say, busy. And you're like no, no no I didn't ask I didn't ask that it was like how are you yeah genuinely I'm really busy I'm like god like we why are we defining ourselves as busy and you know of course we want to be successful in like if if we want to be creative or we want to help people all the things we we all the ambitions we have but those ambitions and those and 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 the work and all that stuff shouldn't be what defines you surely it should be coming from your heart center and who yeah. you are first and then you do that but what I do feel is a lot of the time that heart center is being lost 
I mean, that's a lovely place to stop is that living from your heart center and how that plays out in what you're doing in your daily life. And that, that it is about finding the alignment between that and how you live in creating a kind of kind, loving world that is peaceful, not doing mm-hmm. harm. Sounds like a big thing too. I think so. It definitely kind of eases the anxiety of the madness that's going on that we're all seeing um, and, and the really sad things that are happening all over the world. And, and, and life is precious, so it's good to try and kind of treat it gently and, and, and protect what we have and not take it for granted. Yeah, that our time and our life is very precious. Do you want to tell people where they can find you or what you want them to look at, like the Mary Quant documentary? So at the moment, the documentary I di- uh, directed about Mary Quant is on Sky and it's under, I think, the Iconic Women's section. Cool. Um, and I'm currently filming with Twiggy, doing a documentary about Twiggy, which will be finished. Kind of, We're going to wrap actually next week in Cannes. Wow. wow. Um, which, and then editing and it will be coming out. It will be in festivals at the end of this year, but coming out next year. Fantastic. Well done, you. Thank you so much, Sadie, for joining us Thank on the you. Therapy Works podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. I really enjoyed my conversation with Sadie Frost, and it was something I kind of recognised myself in, in lots of it, about how unpredictable life can be, and you think, is going to go one way and then it goes completely another way. And I think the thing I'm really interested to talk to you about is the relationship with adult children and how that kind of has to be recalibrated. But what were your thoughts around our conversation? I think one of the things, to your first point there, Mum, that just sat really comfortably with me, you know, you know, when someone says something and it feels nice, the way she was talking about this isn't the life that she imagined or maybe even wished for herself. And at the same time, she feels very happy and fulfilled and being able to hold both, being able to be in a place where you can both go, you know, this this maybe wasn't the plan or this isn't what maybe I wanted and I can be really well and really okay and accommodate the things that have happened in my story. It resonated that level of making peace with where you are that felt really lovely to hear about and sort of encouraging, I suppose, in that sense of like when life is throwing you a curveball, we can get, and I know that I can get stuck on the like, this isn't what I wanted. This, you know, you can get sort of stuck in the like resistant to the thing. Um, and it was lovely hearing someone who had navigated through that. Yes. And, and to sort of add to that, I thought it was such a beautiful example of somebody who was very consciously able to appreciate what they have and kind of recognizing 
their blessings and in very intentionally not focusing on the things that could have been or, you know, because obviously she has an incredibly fulfilled life. She's got an amazing career and wonderful family. And there are all sorts of other paths her life could have taken like all of us. Um, and it made me think of the author David Foster Wallace. I've never heard of him. And Who's David Foster Wallace? He's a very famous mum. You should have heard of him. No, <laughs> I've never no, heard no of reason him. you should have heard of him. He's, a, he's an American author. I think he was probably in his prime, I would guess, like maybe 80s, 90s. But he's died. He's not around anymore. Anyway, in one of his books, he writes about these two young fish who are sort of swimming along in the water. And along comes a much older fish. And the older fish says to the younger fish, how's the water today? And the two, two younger fish keep on swimming. And then one of the younger fish says to the other, what the hell is water? And they kind of keep on swimming. And <laughs> it's such a sort of lovely metaphor for like the opposite of what Sadie is doing. She's like the older fish and really able to see sort of the bigger picture and without being specific to her. But I think it's something that is really helpful for all of us to do is to not be so focused in what we don't have or in like the immediate present, but to be able to see what the important things are, recognize the important things, the, the big things. We are in the water. And the holding of both. I can still be grateful and lucky and sad that this isn't true for me too. You know, Very glad that you've got living loss in there because I think it is a real having <laughs> <laughs> loss. <laughs> um, I was thinking about it is a loss. You know, like you and her, you both had children. You both came from big, big, busy families, and then you both had children really, really young. And so I was also sort of thinking, oh my gosh, like the the quiet, like your whole life, you've just kind of been noise and chaos and lots and lots of stuff happening. And then when you're children are grown up, you both have really busy professional lives as well and social lives and all of the other bits. But I imagine that there's something also much quieter. I don't know. You tell me. The pivots for me, and I do really notice the quiet and I really miss you. And I am so grateful for our family WhatsApp when you send pictures of your children and what's going on. That really helps. If there was no mobile phones, if I was like, you know, um, a 19th century mother, I'd find it really, really difficult, the space and not knowing. But the thing where I went particularly bonkers was when you all got married. I feel like you quite wanted me to get married. <laughs> for you, I wanted you to be married and I wanted you to be loved and have the future for all of you. But on each of your wedding days, I was furious. I mean, furious like I want to shout at each of your husbands and at Drusy with Benj I want her you can't touch her and and I didn't feel teary and sad and touched and everything I just wanted to kill the person you were marrying because they were stealing you from me and I felt that for and Michael was looking at me going and I felt that for weeks beforehand and for weeks afterwards that's so funny because I feel like I knew that for Tash. I remember you talking about Tash. I felt like, I wonder however old I was, 33 when I got married. So my, my thought, you were just like, phew, I never thought that was going to happen. <laughs> no, I was grinding my teeth so much I virtually couldn't speak. And, and Mike would look at me and go, what is 
wrong with you? Because he didn't have those feelings. I had this visceral, like physical, like I did not want you to go for each of you. And it's a fury. And, and I've said it to other people and no one, they all look at me like I'm mad, but I do think other people must have it too. I'm sure they do. Actually, I was 35. I've just miscalculated my own age. Or, my... or at different phases that people might feel that. For you, it was marriage, but I think also leaving home or there's different points aren't there that might feel like the moment of loss. I really recognise that even now as I'm living it, and I imagine the same for you, that, that I'm going to feel nostalgia for this time. Like I can already feel that I'm going to feel it of having young children in the sense of how um, joyful they are and the sort of vibrancy of life, even though it's noisy and chaotic and stressful. And the contrast, you know, even when your kids are much older and are not interested in you anymore. I can I can already feel that I will be nostalgic for that kind of experience. The same, because my children are really young, so they're three and a half and nearly two. And, you know, obviously sometimes they hate me and I'm mean and horrible, but also a lot of the time I'm like, you know, it's like having two puppies. You know, they get home and they're like so excited to see you. and It's very good for the ego. Um, and then, you know, they sort of have a meltdown over a banana. Um, but I, I feel like I, it's really egotistical, but I feel like I'm going to miss not being like the centre of their world. And so adored. <laughs> yeah. So adored. utterly adored. <laughs> yeah. Such but a horrible not, fall from grace. Yeah. Without really sort of doing anything to be adored beyond like the fact that like... Existing. Yeah. You produce them. They, you're there. I think that is so good to let yourself know and not get lost in the kind of grind and the work of it, but to really appreciate the innocent, absolute, pure joy of being loved in that way that there's no other way of being loved than by your kids. They're just quite random and funny. But for people listening who have older kids who are leaving home, what did you, you leaving home for you, what did you want from your mother and father? I mean, what do you think helps people? I think it depends a bit on age, but I think definitely for sort of young adults, I think to have the push-pull between like, I'm allowing you your freedom, but I really want you to know that I'm I'm also very much still here and, and still your parent, but kind of allowing the initiative to be with the child, the adult child, but to sort of be quite concrete about saying, look, I want to be here to you, with for you. I don't want to be intrusive, but if you need something, just let me know whether that's like, you know, emotional talk or if you want to come home for a bit, whatever that is, if you're able to offer that. And not to be too controlling is that in that way or not to be too demanding, isn't it? Yeah, so that's sort of why like leaving the initiative in the hands of the... And, and not to guilt, because I think, you know, you never did this actually, so it wasn't my experience. It's like, oh, you know, I've given my whole life to you and now you only phone me once a month and I, I, that doesn't make for good relationships on the whole, even if it's what you feel, take that to somebody else. Like talk about that, which is very, very painful. Like mates. I have given my whole life yeah. to, you know, and talk about it to your friends or your partner or whatever, not to your child. I second that, that the, the ability to be able to be for your child to feel free to go and it's also okay to return and be welcomed back and restored and looked after and then free to go. And I think the other challenge I imagine it will be for me and I imagine it was for you, Mum, is, is trusting your children to make their own mistakes and their own choices. You know, the age when our children are, 
you still can tweak and correct him like don't eat this do eat that go here that's not a good idea um within certain boundaries and when your children become adults it's not trying to over advise and say that's not a good decision and that is a good decision it's like be the listening ear the sort of the role changes doesn't it more and more over time i'm gonna be um, so bad at that being supportive right it's rather than being like i think that's a really bad decision that line between not abandoning them, but also not over-controlling and over-parenting or you're infantilizing your children so they can't learn for themselves and finding that middle ground where children learn to make mistakes and fall on their face and know that they can do that and, and get up and survive, but also that they have support. I don't think any parent really feels that they get it right. It's just a kind of trying stuff out all the time. I hope what I do is if I feel like I want you to know something, I offer it in a way that is an offer rather than telling you what to do. And I think so how you communicate stuff is is um, makes a difference. So I'm trained in um, DBT and there's this really lovely sheet that I wonder if we can put on the show notes. In it, there's sort of three different scales and each of them have like a sort of spectrum and on one side, for example, I think one of them is like fostering independence is what you're aiming for. And then you've got sort of too dependent on the one side and kind of like abandoning on the other side. And you kind of can put yourself on the scale of where you think you are in your parenting or where your parent is and where you'd like to be. And it's, it was sort of designed for thinking about how to parent teenagers, but it's quite a sort of nice concrete way of thinking about these different ways that we relate to teenagers or young adults or maybe even adult children I haven't sort of thought about it in that context and just kind of being able to frame it for yourself that's really useful so the other thing I was thinking about kind of more generally is that our kind of psychological development and maturity can be arrested at the time of a particular trauma or a particular difficulty Sadie talked about it in relation to her dad um, but for people generally, I think it's something that's forgotten. And often the behaviours that people develop as defences against the pain of the trauma are the things that hold them both in the trauma and in the lack of development and that they get stuck. And so then as they age, anything that threatens them, they go back to that eight-year-old or 15-year-old. And I don't think people recognise that enough for themselves. Yes, I think often talking in terms of parts can be very helpful when thinking about this yeah. kind of work, isn't it? Of like that coping strategy or that way of being is kind of emerging because you feel threatened or you feel uh, it's got sort of set off by something. If you can bring awareness to that, then you can be like, okay, that's the part of me who's 18, that's like that my 18-year-old part, or that's my small yeah. child part. And then that allows a little bit of like oxygen <laughs> into having other parts of you come in line and have that kind of internal conversation that maybe that young part needs mothering, maybe it needs someone to support it. And it does. it's less like that's I fully identifying with the part of you that in that moment is really awake and, and wants to be in charge. I think that can be quite a helpful way of relating to those parts of us that can get frozen in time that sort of become our ways of strategies in life 
she talked quite a lot about animals and nature as a very powerful thing, which is kind of my more my bag than your bag, Mum. So you didn't pick on it very much. It's funny. I was and, thinking it's funny that I didn't really notice that, but you did. And at the end, I noticed at the end, she was talking about how life is precious and how things are in the world. And you were like, yeah, our lives are precious. Like, I know. I think she's talking about the climate crisis and that life is precious. And it's and it was like, oh, I think you missed her meaning in that I moment. Um, I'm sure I did. <laughs> uh, and I, I just think that for me, it's a big, um, like having a relationship with the natural world is a big resource and a precious part of feeling alive and joyful, and but also it brings you close to death as all being close to life does. And isn't it interesting how we hear different things from our different perceptions? Always. On that note, Emily and Sophie, thank you. And particular thank you to Sadie Frost for a really meaningful and insightful conversation, which I know lots of people will relate to. If you want to share the podcast with anybody, do share it and also rate and review and subscribe. It would help other people find us, which would be fantastic. And until next week, thanks a lot.